0: Growing out
1: is is not always preferable to growing uh, up. Welcome to Kelowna Talks, where we explore the why behind the decisions that shape your city. Together, we open the curtain and dig deep into current issues, plans, and policies that come out of City Hall. Thanks for joining us as we talk about Kelowna and the topics that matter to you. Today, our host, Bob Evans, is joined by Ryan Smith, Divisional Director of Planning and Development Services at City of Kelowna. Join us as we talk about the official community plan and what's happening with growth in the city.
2: Hello everyone, I'm Bob Evans, Partnerships Office Director at the City of Kelowna and host of our Kelowna Talks podcast. I would like to start by acknowledging that our community is located on the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Silks Okanagan people. I've called Kelowna home for 28 years. I genuinely love the city and I love living here. I've also lived in several larger cities, Toronto, London, and the UK. Both are pretty amazing places. They have their share of big city issues like where does everyone live? How do they get around? Things like that. I've seen Kelowna grow and evolve over the last three decades. And I think the biggest shift I've seen is in the downtown. The shift to residential. There are so many people living downtown today. I hate to say this, but I remember when Prospera Place was a large dirt lot and Sunset Drive didn't exist at all. I've been around for a while. Which brings me to our topic today, growth. Some people love it, others don't. The topic of growth actually invites controversy. Too much growth, not enough growth, not the right kind of growth. Lots of different comments. People move into a neighborhood with expectations, and when change happens in the neighborhood, usually not everyone is happy. So how does Council decide on what development moves ahead and what doesn't? The Official Community Plan, also known as the OCP, shapes a lot of those decisions, and most people don't like what that is. We are talking today to Ryan Smith, our Divisional Director of Planning and Development Services. Ryan, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do at the city. What type of roles, responsibilities do you have, what your team does, how long you've been here and how much time uh, you've spent in the community? So just let us get to know you a little bit. Awesome. Thanks, Bob. Uh, I've been at the city, uh, well, I've lived in Kelowna
0: now for almost 20 years, Uh, 20 years next July, actually. It's crazy how quickly it's gone by. Uh, I did a degree in geography from Simon Fraser University and a certificate in community economic development and started looking for jobs. And I uh, started looking at planning jobs because my uh, dad was a planner. Uh, he worked for 30 years at the city of North Vancouver and retired as their planning director. So I thought, oh, my dad was a planner. Maybe I'll be a good, would be a good planner. I don't really know. I, I took a little bit of planning... Uh, in university and so I applied for planning jobs all over the place and uh, I got a call back from Kelowna and uh, I came up for an interview and didn't know a whole lot about it other than I had an aunt that lived here and uh, uh, I had a good interview and they thought he's no experience but he's really keen and uh so planning
2: uh, is in your genetic string
0: i have a little bit of planning in my genes and uh, my dad actually lives here now and uh, he doesn't give me a whole lot of planning advice these days i think he stays out of my business but uh um, he's always great for advice when i ask for advice and uh, uh when i got to the city i was the guy who gave planning advice at the front counter and uh from there, I kind of worked my way up and have had a whole bunch of different jobs at the city, and I've kind of done every job in the planning department. Uh, one thing I haven't done is worked on the policy side as much. Although certainly I manage a team now that uh, is working on the final stages of getting the OCP uh, approved.
2: Excellent, thank you. That's a great background t- story to tell, and uh, we're. Uh, I think the the city has been. Pretty fortunate to have you at the helm for uh, for the length of the time you've been here. So when you're not planning, you're obviously passionate about planning. Uh, that's what you do for your for your day job. Uh, when, you know, when you're when you're not planning, what is Ryan Smith all about? What do you do? Give us a little bit of insight into who you are. Is there a human underneath that planner? I, Just want to know.
0: I, I'm a chauffeur for my kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's actually true. I show for <laughs> soccer. Yeah, know. we've all been through that. Yeah, kid. Yeah, kid. Soccer yeah. practice. So I've got a a six year old and a and a one year old. And uh, so yeah, we do a lot of uh, a lot of driving around for for them. But uh, I'm a a mountain biker, a skier, a road cyclist. So I love. I mean, one of the things that I absolutely loved about Kelowna is this is like one of the best places to ride a bike, like recreationally in Canada actually probably in North America, just mm. the amount of like protected bike lanes we have or designated bike lanes we have, how quickly you can get into really beautiful spots. And the mountain biking here is amazing too. And the climate to do it. If it's if it's raining in the morning, you can wait two hours and you'll you'll have it'll sunshine change. or yeah. it'll be dry. Yeah, for sure. it's, really, it's really easy. And so yeah, I'm, a, I'm an outdoors person. I trail run a lot and love that as well. I don't like running on the road so much. I guess I'm like, I'm 40 now. My knees get a little sore, my <laughs> hip gets sore. Uh, yeah. Like I, so, and I'm a, a real like cities person. Like when we travel, uh, I love going to cities. And uh, we went to Barcelona a couple years ago, just just before the whole COVID lockdown, and uh, stayed in you know a, a, an amazing neighborhood and and a sort of six story building with an old that old elevator in it. And I'd go up in the elevator. My six year old would race me up in the stairs and. Uh, it was like, a, it was a, just a, a really cool experience in terms of, you know, as you grow urban density and there was a grocery store across the street from us. So
2: back to the planner. stuff. Yeah. Back to the planner. Sorry I you, did that. I can't no, get away okay. from it. No, okay. You live yeah. it. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's, that's why we travel. And when we travel, we bring ideas back to our city and uh, it personally influence, influences your life. And you know that, no, that's a good thing. Yeah. Not, definitely. yeah. <laughs> Today, Cologne is the home to nearly 140,000 people. And by 2040, we expect there will be another 45,000 of us in the city. That's hard to imagine um, as we look at the city today. So right off the bat, where are all these people going to live? The OCP is a policy framework for council, and it's a guide. So, Ryan, in the simplest way possible, because we're pretty simple people here, on my side anyways, uh, can you tell us what it means, uh, what the OCP means, and how does it work? Uh, So I'll try to do it in a
0: way that isn't full of, you know, Planning jargon. Uh, I know that uh, that most people don't really identify with that or care about that, but they want to know. You know what's going to impact my day to day. When I moved to Kelowna, uh, there was ninety thousand people here. So we've added uh, about forty-five thousand people uh, since I got there, and I've been involved uh, in various aspects of a lot of that growth. Uh, one thing we've learned, and that cities all over North America have learned, is that growing out and the problems that come with that. Um, is, is not always preferable to growing uh, up more centrally in the city. And so what we've done with successive official community plans now, our, our vision to start um, densifying the centre of the city um, started you know, probably 20 years ago now when we started allowing secondary suites and carriage houses uh, in, in homes uh, in the central areas of the city. And that's continued on in 2010, for example, or 2011, when we adopted our 2030 uh, community plan. Uh, We started uh, containing uh, a lot of our growth within uh, uh, a permanent growth boundary of the city. So we allow very little growth now outside of that boundary. And we do tweak the edges of that from time to time. But uh, yeah, very little growth or you know, subdivision for residential development happens outside of that, that area. So uh, that was really the first, the biggest step we'd taken to that point to contain growth to you know, the built up areas of this city or the areas that are planned had designated for growth. Uh, and then in our 2040 official community plan, uh, we're taking an even bigger step, uh, really trying to put more growth in the very core areas of our city. Uh, So if you live in a single family neighborhood uh, in the next few years, right now you could put in a, you know, you could have a house and you could have a secondary suite or you could have a house and a carriage house, but you might be able to have up to four units, um, you know, five years from now on that property. And so we'll start start to see a gradual turnover and a lot of new construction in some of the central areas of the city. And we've done some testing. We're not just running at this blindly. Uh, We did an infill challenge that my staff led uh, several years ago where we took, about 800 lots in the core area of the city and said, what happens if those lots can do four units on them rather than two? And what happens if we give a uh, give a pre-approved designer uh, to property owners so that they could pay a designer for something that they don't have to go through the city's, you know, a, a three-month planning process or a six-month planning process? They could just go get a building permit and build you know, four units. And so we've had some great success from that program as well and learned some things that uh, um, we didn't expect. And so, yeah, I mean, in terms of we're not, we're not going at adding density to the center of the city blind. We know that, uh, um, you know, we should be putting density in the center of the city. And so we're trying to do that sensitively. And there are parts of those programs that we're going to have to get better at doing so that, um, you know, the current residents in those areas um, see that growth as a positive thing.
1: And
2: as I drive around the city, I I notice there's lots of infill that's happened as a result of that policy. And uh, do you think that scares people? Um, You know, when we talk about density as planners and as the city, sometimes that word can be a bit um, elusive to people. So when we think about density and we think about adding towers downtown, if I'm just moving to Kelowna today, not the 28 years ago when I moved here, what can people expect? What's our city going to look like? Um, you know, how's that gonna impact my daily life? How am I gonna to get to my job? How many, how, you know, what, how many parks will there be? What What's my access to the lake? I mean, is that all part of that vision in the OCP? Yeah, and that's why
0: we do the, the, the community planning and the official community plan is to look ahead 20 years and say, um, obviously, uh, people have been moving here. I mean, the me and, you know, 35 or 40,000 other people have moved here over the last 20 years uh, for a reason. These these natural assets that are as absolutely stunning, and access to really different experiences that are that are amazing too. And so people want to be here. And I think that um, looking ahead, that what the community plan is doing is saying, okay, well, we're anticipating more people wanting to be wanting to be here. Uh, the numbers, uh, the growth projections from uh, the federal government are telling us the same thing that we should expect uh, a certain growth rate, and it may even be more than that. And things like COVID have shown us that. Uh, rather than slowing down growth in Kelowna, uh, the last year has been one of our biggest booms that uh, we've ever had here. Uh, One of the the numbers that continues to to blow me away, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, is um, the construction value um, of all the permits we've issued in 2021 will probably be about a billion dollars. And it's a huge number. And like I I just, I mean, for a, a city of our size, uh, we're growing um, disproportionately quickly. can It's hard to. You can't really shut down the growth. Though people say, "Why are you growing so quickly?" Well, um, we have this beautiful spot. When you put it, when you know tourism, Kelowna puts it out there. Uh, when it's on the news, people look at it, Look at Kelowna and say, "Like I want to live there too." And if you've lived in a, a bigger city where it's tougher to get around, and you move here, um, you know people here. If you live here and you've lived here for 15 years, you might see your commute getting longer. But people move here from Vancouver or Toronto or from Europe and see and see a, maybe they had an hour commute or an hour and a half before. And if their commute's only 20 minutes now, they think that's fantastic. It
2: looks different for them. Absolutely. It looks yeah. way different for them. I remember them. sitting in a car in the 401 for hours trying to get to work.
0: And and one of the things that we're trying to do as we grow in Klonabob is when we're putting all putting new people in here, we're trying to put them in in spots that are a bit more strategic so uh, our new uh, community plan really looks to let our busy corridors like gordon drive and lakeshore and pandozi clement and if you clement's a really good example as it's grown up the last few years where it's a it's a busy corridor there's transit service along there there's bike lanes there's good access to downtown And so we see a a whole lot of growth, uh, like multifamily growth happening along Clement. And there'll be more. It seems like every time I uh, drive down there, there's more multifamily rental buildings. There's market housing. It's a great mix. And it's a spot where there already was other great amenities, too. If you look at all the the breweries in the north end that it kind of popped up more organically. So I would say the official community plan really plans for, um, you know, some of that growth and guides it. And we do our best to, to, to follow it. Um, some of the things that I would say one of the successes that is kind of unplanned is the growth of that brewery district down there with the the wineries and the breweries and and the cideries like how cool is that 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 just sort of popped up in no plan did we say there should be breweries and wineries and cideries in that area um but one happened and then another happened and another another happened and now you have like walking tours and bike tours of people on the weekends in the summer that go from one to the next to the next. Well, and that's next. the
2: upside of bringing more people to our city. Yeah, so there's okay. a lot of people that, that have issues and challenges around traffic and just the fact that you have to wait in line now, maybe for some restaurants where before you could just walk right in, but more people brings more amenities and actually helps us out in terms of how we fund parks and how we fund Different aspects of of the general uh, enjoyment and life of our city. So you mentioned a couple things in your in in those comments, and one I'd like to expand on a little bit, which is uh, your your comment on the university. I don't think any of us really had an idea what the impact of UBC would be on our city. And now my understanding, and it's out there that UBC is going to be building a, a new campus facility downtown. What's your What's your thought of that, around that, and how, uh, how do you think that will impact our, our downtown?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge positive impact downtown. Um, the university has had a huge positive impact on, on the north end of our city and continues to um, as they grow out there. But yeah, when I as a city planner, uh, when I see things like First Interior Health um, consolidating uh, a lot of their um, operations into one building downtown, um, that was a big game changer. The Innovation Center getting built, another big game changer downtown. And now the university uh, locating a, a lot of services down there in a, in a new development. Um, it's going to be amazing, the impact on downtown. I know I've heard for the 20 years that I've been here, I'm scared to go downtown. I don't like um, different parts of downtown. I don't feel safe downtown. Well, the solution to those, those feelings of a lack of security is putting more people um, on the streets downtown. Uh, More people living down there who care about downtown, who want to make it a better place. And so when I hear complaints about the high rises, for example, but those high rises are going to house people that live down there and start to care about it and want it to be clean and want to spend most of their day down there. Um, You know, I I heard recently, actually, I think I read it on a a Kelowna Now um, Facebook post uh, that you know, all this growth going on downtown, we need more grocery stores now. And that's awesome. Like people are starting, that's a planner thing to think about. And we say that to developers when thinking about development, is it time to include a new grocery store in your development? Uh, With um, UBC putting, you know, however many, um, you know, hundreds of, of dorm rooms and classrooms, you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet of classroom space downtown um, you know, do we hit that tipping point where Safeway isn't the only grocery store downtown? We need another grocery store downtown. You know, how close can it be? And that, that, uh, that campus will be you basically you, you cycle um, down the street from there. You end up on the um, the and rail trail or Coston bicycle trail, and you can head down to the rail trail quickly. And if you like if you had a scooter or a bike, you can be at the university and 25 minutes from there the main campus. Like how cool is that connection? You can almost do the whole thing uh, on dedicated cycling corridors now. And not everybody is going to be a cyclist here. Like I don't think we're under any illusion that we're going to, I think you see lots of comments out there that, you know, the city, we, um, we want the city to turn into a city of cyclists and that's not realistic. I don't think we expect that at all. Um, we want to provide the infrastructure so that more people can do it. And it's an easy option. And more people will do it. Uh, Lots of people move here from bigger cities that are used to bigger city cycling infrastructure. And it's part of growing. Uh, A lot of people just use it for recreation. And if you look at the rail trail on a Saturday morning, that's probably the busiest day of the week is a Saturday or Sunday morning. And there's like thousands of bikes and e-bikes and people enjoying it. And how cool is that? And the ducks are getting in the way a little bit. But, uh, I mean, otherwise, it's a fantastic amenity that gets heavily used. And so, I I mean, I think that those pieces of infrastructure, they can be recreation, they can be transportation. And so I think that we don't just need to look at those things as as transportation and the city's trying to force us to do that. It's not realistic. Um, There's also plans. We just uh, are in the final stages of our transportation master plan. And so we're looking at what the best bang for the taxpayer's buck and best bang for moving people around. What what do we what projects do we do over the next twenty years? Uh, we can't grow all over the place. We don't have enough money to grow all over the place. So how do we most wisely spend the taxpayers' money on you know connections that really make a difference?
2: Okay, so this is where I have to jump in. I don't want to be the naysayer and ask you all the the negative questions, but what do we say to the average person in a car saying, well, you know, my drive time is increased from X to Y? And how do we look at it from a city-wide planning perspective, where we're trying to create a balance between attracting amenities in our downtown, a distribution to different uh, urban town centers, but there's still the impact. People still have to get in the car and they have to drive from A to B and get groceries and the things we're talking about, and sometimes that can really cause a lot of frustration for people. So, I know it's a baseline question, but what are we doing about roads, Ryan?
0: Yeah, I don't have an easy answer to that question because it's such a complex issue. I mean, at the the heart of it is when you build more roads and add more lanes of traffic, the science says that those fill up quickly. You're creating, an e- you're creating an e- a very easy route. If you create a new easy route for someone to use, then all of a sudden you're not the first person who discovers that easy route. Lots of people discover that easy route and they adra- adapt their travel patterns or more people decide that they want to live in an area that's then further outside of the city because we've made it really easy to live out there. Uh, but uh, wider roads come with more road maintenance costs. Um, when we put infrastructure on the outskirts of the city, um, we're sending our snow plows, for example, a whole lot farther to to, to plow roads. And so I, I, uh, I live close to the hospital, and my roads, it snows in the winter, and my roads get plowed um, like four days later. And I hear my neighbors complain about that too, and they know that, I'm a planner, and they asked me why my roads, why can't I get my own road plowed? And I said, no, um, the priority rows are the ones on the hillsides and the outskirts of the city because they're the steepest, they ice up the quickest, the temperature's a little bit lower up there. So, it's all, the, all those reasons why the snow plows go to the outs, outskirts of the city first, and they do our arterials uh, as well. Um, you know, they do the Gordons and the Lakeshores and the Glenmores. But by and large, it's those steeper areas of the city. So uh, when we talk about like adding new roads all over the place, we have a, a transportation master plan that anticipates the need uh, for more roads in strategic spots. And so we will see, uh, I guess, for example, a good one is connecting uh, the um, enterprise leckey 97 area. It's kind of a bottleneck in that area. Everything pinches between Dilworth Mountain and Mission Creek. And if you try and drive through there between, like, you know, 11 and 6 o'clock, it's a bit of a nightmare. And one of the projects that we have on the books, it's not uh, a funded project, but it'll probably be a partnership at some point, is a connection from the end of Highway 33 down to um, the Spall Glenmore Glenmore area. And then northwards up towards the university. So it's a a connection that... um, you know we've been um, whether it's protecting land for or acquiring land for over the years but it's a really really expensive road to build and we don't want to build it in advance but at some point it's going to be necessary and we'll build it out of a, a partnership with, with the provincial government hopefully and and that will help so we have those things on the books but uh, again it's not that will get busy then too people so, will use that so as a shortcut so you're not
2: ignoring cars you just, just you're just no. Diversifying how people get a, a, around yeah, yeah, our just city.
0: More options. And yeah. I mean, right now, um, you ask people why they do don't use the bus. Well, the bus doesn't come frequently enough or doesn't come to my neighborhood frequently enough. But if you live closer to the center of the city and, and, on a, on, and close to a street where we can put more frequent bus service because there's more people living there, so we got to put the people there first before the transit makes sense or we're subsidizing it too much. So I, we'll start to see with the new community plan, the city put more housing density, uh, closer to some of our busier streets where we have transit already. Uh, Glenmore Road, for example, um, you'll start to see uh, some new, more dense housing projects, you know, on the parts of Glenmore Road that are, um, you know, between uh, Summit and um, Spall. Uh, We're trying to put some more density in that area. It's an area where you're close to the center of the city, there's lots of transit. Uh, Again, I mentioned Clement already, but areas like that are like spots to be, to be putting people, you're on a major transportation corridor. And uh, if you could walk out your front door and get a bus where you you, you know that you're just going to be service every 15 minutes, you might, you might be more
2: likely to You'll do, do, do that. Yeah. And don't, people talk about paper parking and the hassle, you can relax a little bit on transit, all the advantages to transit.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that also, um, as we start to see car share takeoff a little bit more here and Uber and all those types of things. I mean, it's those things have been a little bit slow off the ground, but adding more density in the center of the city uh, makes all of those different options more possible. Uh, I mean, I, scooters being a controversial one, but again, if you as a student could spend you know $1,000 on a scooter and live downtown and scoot up the rail trail to UBC, plug it in and then scoot back at the end of the day, Rather than spending you know ten thousand dollars or fifteen thousand dollars on a car, paying for gas and insurance, you'd probably do that, right? And so, keeping that option open and thinking about you know could we keep the rail trail um, passable in the winter for you know bikes and scooters and all those types of things would be a great, great thing.
2: Well, the scooters is a is an interesting one because it has been controversial in some aspects, and I think that what it says though to us is that we're trying things as a city. We're not close to innovation and sometimes, you know, you start off with scooters everywhere and then you reel it in a little bit and you regulate it a little bit more and you try to control it, but at least the city's trying. I, I you know, I think that's that's a, you know that's a, a positive aspect to the whole uh, multiple modal transit challenge.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, and then whether it's yeah, in the transportation realm or whether it's in the housing realm and you look at you know, our, our infill challenge project to put, you know, more housing density in, in the center of the city and do it in a way that's sort of gentle to neighborhoods. Uh, I, I think that we're trying to innovate all over the place and, uh, you know, i trying to do it in a way in some areas that's more sensitive and you you end up with, the, you know, the discussion about what is what does the density look like and where are you putting it? And we've tried to be sensitive in the community plan and say, okay, well, in some areas that are very residential right now, um, you know the density that we add to those neighborhoods or project for those neighborhoods will be a bit, a bit more gentle. So it'll be the you know the the duplexes, fourplexes, maybe sixplexes, um, depending on if it's on a busy street or not. But then you end up with you know larger um, scale development downtown or in the Rutland Town Center or near Orchard Park Mall, where um, you know larger rental scale larger scale rental housing projects. Again, it's a, that's, Orchard Park Mall is a great example in that area where there really isn't a whole lot of housing right now and transit's really difficult. But, um, you know, they have got um, grocery stores in that neighborhood. You've got, you know, access to Orchard Park Mall. You've got a transit exchange. We should be putting way more housing uh, in those areas. If you were a student... And you could live close to Orchard Park Mall where there's a transit exchange. It means you could get to the university easily. You can get downtown easily. Like, great options to have. And so um, the plan that we have really encourages that type of... You sound like a
2: planner. You really like this, don't you? I get excited about it. Yeah, I'm a bit of, I'm a, bit of a planning nerd. Uh. No, I, I love it. And, and I, I'm going to segue off of that, um, those couple of comments on various densifications and growth in different areas. And talk about something I think that we see in the press sometimes where we have applications before council from the development community that um, requires an OCP amendment. So here we are, we're spending all this time investing in the OCP, thinking about these things, uh, writing plans, and quite often, well I wouldn't say quite often, but occasionally we see applications before council that have staff support. To, to amend the OCP. So can you explain that? Like, why does that happen? And what's the rationale behind changing a plan that we've already um, adopted, voted on, had public comment and, and critique on?
0: Okay, it'll take me a little while to, to walk you through this, but I guess yeah. broadly, um, the official community plan, you know, is an expression of, you know, how the community wants to grow. And it's full of policies to help guide how the the community should grow. Uh, That gets done at a really high level. And we don't go property by property. Um, And there there is a lot of different policy that relates to every property in the city. And so we don't have a value system in the artificial community plan that says one policy is more important than the other policy is more important than another policy. Um, That's what Um, planners make recommendations to council on. In in a specific case, um, you know, housing in this neighbourhood or more housing in this neighbourhood is more important than something else potentially if there's a a conflict in policy. So, you know, the official community plan, uh, we do project out, you know, what type of development should happen in a certain neighbourhood or along a certain street, but that doesn't done with a fine tooth comb. Uh, We might take a section of Gordon uh, and say, you know, this side of the street because of a reason you see, sh- a reason we see should probably be this and that other side should probably be that land use. And maybe we're saying one side should should be, you know, stay single family with suites or carriage houses and the other side of the street um, for some particular reason should have, you know, four to six-story buildings on it. Uh, but there, it there's no real, I guess, um, in terms of, you know, if there if there is a in the area we've designated for single family and said should be single family, there might be a particular reason why maybe we were wrong in that case because it was such a high level. We just said, generally speaking, one side's going to be this and the other side's going to be that. But maybe um,
2: because on, it's not a case of you being wrong, no, it's not. not it's about just being again, you're 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 trying to cast a large vision here that you can't anticipate every little individual lot or nuance on every development application. Is that the message? Is that That's the message. And I think
0: there's some properties where we just don't think, you know, they might not, redevelopment might not be on the radar. And so I'll give an example of uh, like a a church property, for example. Um, There's a lot of church properties in the city where either the church is in the middle or close to the street and there's a sea of parking around it. And they're quite centrally located. And, you know, we're a city that has a, or a, among many cities that have a housing crisis going on. And, you know, when we look at that, we don't, you know, we don't know if a church is looking to redevelop or not. But uh, in our official community plan, we just say, well, um, presumably it's going to stay a church for this foreseeable future. So it gets an institutional uh, sort of land use projection on the property. But uh, that church may come in and say, you know what, we want to add, um, 250 units of residential housing in the parking lot here that's being underused. And we want to take the revenue from that and put it back into the church. Or maybe use that um, housing uh, as rental housing to support um, parishioners of the church, for example. And so maybe we, then we need to change the official community plan to recognize that we're going to put housing on that spot before we give it a rezoning. So housing is the major objective. And some, in some locations or in a lot of locations, if we can get, you know, for example, more rental housing than last by adding an extra story to the building. And I can think of lots of different examples where we've uh, supported you know, building height variances where the extra story has meant another 20 rental units. And those rental units are super important uh, in the overall scheme of things. So, and I know that when we get back to the big picture, you know, why are we growing so much? Um, Well, if we don't grow, we're not adding the housing units we need uh, in the spots where we need them in the city. So, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those things that if we cut off the supply entirely, housing gets even more expensive and people have an even harder time finding housing and we can't support the growth of UBC. We can't support the growth of Interior Health and doctors moving here have a hard hard time finding places to stay. People coming here who need, you know, we're a, a regional medical hub. Um, in that area around in the hospital, we need places for people to live. We need places for nurses to live. We need places for um, customers of the hospital to use. And um, so all those types of pressures are playing into us. When you go back to the official community plan, um, just kind of bring it back to where, where we started here, uh, there's going to be, um, you know, the housing as a, you know, provision of housing as a policy objective Maybe more important than you know the the design of the building. So adding so, so an extra So it's visionary,
2: story, but it's not rigid.
0: It's not rigid, and it's never meant to be. It's not a regulation. It's a it's a policy vision, and where the regulations come in, are, we have a, a zoning bylaw that's meant to uh, implement the official community plan. And so when you hear um, you know a variance to a building height and development, that's a variance to the zoning bylaw. And, again, when we build a zoning bylaw, you don't build a zoning bylaw that's going to anticipate every single situation. And it's a, a zoning is a really blunt tool. And you'll see lots of buildings in, in town that you look at and you think, that's a really nice building. Like um, the developer did a really good job. Staff did a really good job, like working with that developer to get that end product. But you don't know that, you know, when the, in the approval process, it, it, did, it didn't meet like seven or eight different zoning rules. And so sometimes zoning will stop the good stuff from happening as well. And you know, that's another uh, job for the planning team is to say, you know, to give counsel an analysis and say, you know what, despite the fact that this doesn't meet these
2: zoning rules, um, you know the project is really, really good. Well, I think that's important for people to hear when you think about an application that it's, it can be initiated by, by the developer, but it's a cooperative process between the developer the development community, um, the city, city staff, the professionals on city staff, and the general public. The general public has multiple opportunities to show up at council and have their say and add valuable input to it as well.
0: Oh, for sure. And I think we've tried to make the process more transparent over the years, too. So now if you wanted to sign up for a, a daily email that tells you what new development projects or applications have come in, you can do that, and then through that system, you could find out what planner was working on is working on the file, what their phone number is, what their email address is, and so if you want to contact them, it's really not hard. It's not hidden behind the scenes. It's open. It's successful. It's totally open, and then yeah. we also put the the drawings that the developer has submitted online too, so the public can see all of those as well. And the, yeah, the real drive is to you know to to get um, people access. If they want to provide early input into the process, they can. Uh, we also try and put the developer. Um, in direct contact with the neighbors uh, so that they're going door-to-door-to-door around. And it's a a little bit different through COVID. Sometimes that happens by um, drop-off now of like a flyer or uh, emails, that type of thing. But in direct direct contact with the neighborhood. So the planning department isn't always filtering the feedback of the neighbors. I think sometimes if you're the neighbor of a development, you know best about your neighborhood. Uh, And so if you know... You know the developer who is trying to make the change, contacting them directly. And I think I always want my staff to know, you know, what the neighborhood's feedback is. But we want the staff, um, or I want the, the neighborhood in direct contact with the developer, telling them what they think. And at the end of the day, um, you know, if the developer is totally ignored in neighborhood, uh, it doesn't look good in a in a in that council forum. Um, to have 15 neighbors come out and say, we tried to talk to the developer, the developer totally ignored us. You know, it, we, it always helps when the developer stands up and can say, hey, I heard this from the neighborhood, so I did this to the project. I heard this from planning staff, so I did this to the project, and it's made a better project. That's our goal with every single development application. It doesn't always happen that way, unfortunately. It's not a perfect world, and with the amount of development that, that's going on, every developer sort of sees it a little bit differently. But the more seasoned developers, have more robust um, public engagement processes
2: and are you know, better aware of city policies. Well, that adds to the diversity of the city, I think, and the interest oh, of the city oh, yeah. as well. So bringing this back to the OCP, and as we're talking now about citizen engagement, the OCP is a vision for a 20 year vision for the city. So it's not just planners, tucked away inside some dark corner of city hall, writing a plan there by themselves, there's public input. So can you tell me a little bit about how you encourage input from the general public, the population of Kelowna, and how that influences the direction of the plan?
0: Yeah, through the the OCP uh, update process, um, we, we got input from the public in a whole bunch of different ways at different times in the process. Uh, so there was there was input at the the beginning. We did um, before COVID. Uh, we did uh, uh, a lot of community workshops. We were at um, Capital News Center in the foyer. We were at uh, uh, out in Rutland um, at the arena. We were it was like a, a whole bunch of different stops. Um, some better attended than others. Uh, as COVID started, we switched to more online um, surveys and got more online feedback. And uh, then we did, um, um focus groups on, online as well, where, you know, we invited 15 people or 20 people, uh, to meet with their OCP team on a certain topic, uh, and give feedback. So we've tried to use a whole bunch of different tools to get feedback on that plan. And I, again, I think that more is always better in these situations and we don't, we can't hit everybody. And some people just aren't interested in the plan in its entirety, uh, and it's a bit of a chore to sit down and read, you know, a two hundred pages of a document. Well, my numbers say you've
2: heard from over four thousand people. Is that accurate?
0: That's accurate. Yeah, And we've wow. had some of the more robust um, citizen engagement than, you know, we, that we've had with any any plan as part of this, and it started with an Imagine Kelowna, uh, which was a kind of a visioning exercise, which then um, directed sort of the, or gave the direction for the the official community plan process, and we're taking that direction now that we've got through that and we're translating that into zoning bylaw updates so what the community is going to have uh, probably in the next six months is a um a an official a community plan uh that is, is vision translated from imagine Kelowna and that gets translated into um, a new zoning bylaw a new development servicing bylaw the transportation master plan so all these things line up well from a policy perspective and that's this is the first time that we've ever done it that way before uh, in the past, sometimes we'd update the official community plan, but the zoning bylaw doesn't get updated. And you know, we—that was uh, what happened in um, uh, 2011 we, uh, when we adopted our 2030 official community plan. It, it didn't function that well um, implementing the vision of that 2030 OCP. We should have done more targeted zoning updates at that point. We learned. And so that's why we're doing it this time. We need different types of development um, in the core areas of the city, and we need zoning that facilitates those types of development uh, so that developers um, are following a rule set that's reasonable uh, every time they propose a development.
2: Okay, so I'm in the car, or maybe I'm on my bike, and I'm driving up or riding up Knox Mountain, and I'm at one of the lookouts, and I'm sitting there with my family and... We're looking out over the city 20 years from now. What am I going to see? Can you sort of sum up? We're getting close to the end of our time here. Can you sort of sum up what you would like to see, or not you, I guess, the whole document of the OCP? What would that envision? What would that look like as a physical manifestation when I'm at that lookout at Knox Mountain? So, and I, I, I
0: will start maybe with what the biggest focus is, and that's, you know, developing our urban centers more. So you know, downtown, um, our primary urban center. So you'll see more housing built downtown. Uh, likely that will be in the form of high rises. Um, around the bottom of those high rises, we'll see whether it's townhouses or commercial development. So you'll certainly see more of that. Sites like Toko will see some growth and development on the Toko site um, 20 years from now. Probably you know two thirds of the development on that site will be done. Uh, if you look to the you know, south and South Pandozi, uh, you'll see um, you know more larger scale construction in the South Pandozi area. Uh, we've set a height limit there of uh, um, fourteen stories, um, but we haven't. We're not going to go above that, um, and likely more of it will be in the four to six story range. So we'll see sort of more four to six story development in that area, but it will grow up a little bit. Uh, We'll see, um, we're we're at Landmark right now, Uh, we'll see a lot more residential housing in the Landmark district, a lot more mixed use housing, um, more um, sort of, I would say mid rise to high rise towers in this area as well. And this will start to grow up as well, probably more residential housing at Capri Mall as well, uh, which was part of a planning exercise we did in this area. So you'll see towers start to pop up with residential development in the Capri Mall. Uh, And then as you look further to the east uh, around Orchard Park Mall, uh, more again, multifamily housing start to pop up. Uh, There may be some some more, there's a few towers there now. There may be some more towers in that area. And then in Rutland again, you'll start to see very defined sort of um, uh, clusters of density that are more right now. You see the odd tower here and there and you'll see more buddies for those towers, uh, I guess is the best way to put it, um, in, the, in those core areas. Uh, the, the, I say the core area neighborhoods, uh, the change is going to be much more gentle. Uh, we may see, you know, more three- and four-story buildings along, you know, whether it's Richter Street or Pandozi, But by and large, it's going to be, um, you know— Two to three-story, um, you know, two, uh, fourplexes, maybe some sixplexes. It's a bit more of a gentle transition um, of, of adding density into those neighborhoods, but the bulk of the density is going to go into those neighborhoods. So um, we're looking at finding ways that are easy to add, um, help you know, help property owners in those areas and developers and builders add density to those neighborhoods um, without you know really long, arduous uh, development processes. And we'll start to see um, the fruits of some of that work over the next two or three years um, that will go through the council process. So uh, it's a, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a gentle growth still in the core area of the city, and the most significant growth that we'll see is in those urban center areas uh, in, in the city. And I think that Rutland is one that has a ton of potential, and uh, we're really excited about. Uh, you know, we've we've added some some certain some. Um, both active transportation infrastructure, transit infrastructure, um, in in central Rutland, and we're starting to see some early investment in, in new buildings there, and we're really excited to see kind of how that goes and more development interest there as well. So I think that um, it's we'll, Rutland's
2: time, isn't it? Yeah, I think it really is yeah. Rutland's time, and
0: yeah. uh, it's one of those areas that uh, you know, as a planning team, every time we get to, to work on a you know a new development in Rutland, we love seeing that you know how that how that's changing, and you can drive along. Uh, highway 33 through Rutland now and you know before you didn't see a whole lot of growth there in the last like 8 or 9 years um, there's a a whole lot of new multifamily development that's gone on along there which is like perfect spot for it you've got transit running along highway 33 there it's close to um, you know, a lot of the shopping and the services. So I mean, I think that um, there's a lot of uh, amenity there. And it's a, a very, like, it's a, it's a tight community and a, a proud neighborhood. And, and I hope that uh, they've embraced a lot of growth. And I think they're going to em- embrace more growth in the in the next 10 or 15 years.
2: Well, there's a lot of exciting things to think about. And uh, today, we're really focusing on the OCP. So thank you, Ryan. I, um, I can't wait to see how the plan evolves. And how uh, investment follows the plan and what that looks like for the evolution of our city. So really appreciate that. Well, I think that's it for for today. Uh, Really appreciate your time and your vision and your passion about our city. So uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the chat.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Kelowna Talks. For more conversations about topics that matter in your community, subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts If you liked what you heard, give us a five-star rating and share Kelowna Talks with your friends and neighbours. If you'd like more information about this podcast and other big community conversations, visit Kelowna.ca slash community stories.